Welcome everyone, I'm your host, The Traveling Berean, and that makes these The Berean Dialogues. Today's dialogue is the first of a multi-part series focusing on soteriology, specifically concerning the concept of predestination. In this first dialogue, I'll be interviewing Brother Kevin Thompson. Brother Kevin will explain what he believes in regard to predestination and why he rejects Calvinism. This first interview is over two hours in length, so I divided it into two separate episodes, each roughly being an hour long. My second guest will be Brother Dave Stone. Brother Dave is what is known as a primitive Baptist, and he believes that God has predestined some individuals to be saved and not others. So, did God predetermine who would believe the gospel? and receive eternal life? This is a very interesting and hotly debated topic, and one I have enjoyed looking into. So, let's talk about it. Kevin Thompson, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind going ahead, before we get into it, sharing a little bit about yourself and any type of ministry that you're involved in. Yeah, sure. No problem. My name is Kevin Thompson, and I grew up in a Christian household. I was saved at a young age, and um, I am a retired Army officer. I retired from the Army in 2015. I was actually trying to go in as a chaplain initially, but our the U.S. invasion into Iraq kind of derailed my trajectory there, and I wound up going active duty as a signal officer instead. Um, I have a theology degree from the University of Mobile, and I've tried to use my calling to the ministry and my desire to serve and the education that I have um, for God wherever I go. So I've been involved in a lot of churches. I've served as pastor and interim pastor at several different churches, and I've served in overseas ministries. I try to lead a Bible study just about everywhere that I go. So I've had an opportunity to live in a whole bunch of places and minister uh, to, for, and with. Uh, a lot of people from a lot of different grounds, religious, ethnic backgrounds, which has been very interesting, very rewarding, and very fulfilling. And doing lately, um, since from the Army, after a stint as pastor at Bible Church, once that came, to, I've been focusing pretty much on doing videos. And the focus of the videos lately has been refutation of Calvinism from a non-Arminian, non-Calvinistic perspective. So that's what's going on lately, and that's kind of where I'm coming from. Yeah, awesome. That's perfect. So my first question for you is, just for the sake of the people who are going to be listening to this who may not be familiar with the topic— of predestination, if you wouldn't mind telling us what the word predestined predestination means exactly. Well, that is a very loaded word. One of the very first things I deal with when I'm talking to live audiences is what does predestination mean? So I'll ask the question and you might, if you're listening to this, you might want to imagine you're sitting in an audience and ask yourself whether or not you'd, you'd raise your hand when I ask you this question, do you believe in predestination? Or I might say, who believes in predestination? And that Russ asked a better question to ask. It's not not you believe in predestination. What does it mean? And that's such an excellent question. I, and I, it's such a simple question. And I don't think it gets asked a whole lot. 
what does predestination mean? So what is very crucial from for a Christian to do is to not think of predestination as a topic or a concept, but rather take it all the way down to the the hermeneutical approach, the exegetical approach. Stop seeing predestination as a topic to discuss and rather see it as a word that appears in a text that has a context and it's just another word that needs to be interpreted along with other words. So we tend to think of predestination as, I mean, really you don't know what goes through people's head when you say predestination. So you kind of have to clear the field a little bit. There's, I'm, I'm, our Eastern friends over in Japan and China, some of our um, Hindu and Buddhist friends, they have, they have a version of predestination. They have a version of determinism. And then our philosophy, any kind of philosophers from humanity past all the way up to the present day, if you listen from, you know, you can listen to uh, say Rupert Sheldrake or some, or, or Donald Hoffman or um, Sam, for example, a popular one, Jordan Peterson, all these guys talk about the concept of predestination as, as an issue as it relates to biology and whether or not all biological material, biological processes are predeterminate in what they can and will do. And so there's one aspect of predestination to where maybe we're just talking about are all things predetermined in a general sense, in a, in a way that a Hindu or an atheist would be, would believe it. and But in Christian circles, it usually has a little bit more of a specific meaning. And the concept of predestination when it comes to Christianity usually has to do with whether or not people are predetermined or pre-chosen to be saved from the past. Um, for example, uh, Augustine, fourth century, posits the idea. If you were to read as historical theology, he goes across the word predestination, and what McGregor says is the term predestination refers to God's or eternal to save some and not others. To save some and not others. And uh, so when Christians start thinking of predestination, the concept usually hovers around whether or not certain people are chosen to be saved and certain people are chosen to be lost. And then when you talk about the concept in general, in terms of philosophy, it grows into this concept of whether or not everything is predetermined or whether or not, uh, you know, like every molecule, like God has before the foundation of the world, sovereignly decreed where every molecule will go and what every spin on every particle will be before or after it is observed, and that sort of stuff. <laughs> so that mm. term, what do you mean by predestination, is a really great question. Well, scripturally speaking, what is your view of predestination and how does it differ from the Calvinistic interpretation of, of predestination? That's a great question. So, with regard to predestination, this question has to be tied into the explanation that I just gave about what predestination is. 
because what a Calvinist does, what a Calvinist will do is they will play a sleight of hand trick on the Christian here by, and what I mean is this, the Augustinian view of predestination that he developed after the Pelagian controversy, as, as McGrath defines it as, the term predestination refers to God's original or, or eternal decision to save some and not others. That is the prevailing view of the term predestination throughout most of Christendom. So the issue isn't whether, to most people, they don't think of it in terms of what does the term mean. They think of it in terms of do I or do not, do I not accept that? Okay. And where the sleight of hand comes in is the Calvinist will take advantage. And by Calvinist, what say what's a Calvinist? That would be um, basically a modern day person who accepts the Augustinian view of predestination, who, who consciously accepts it. Okay. They, they understand what the definitions are and they accept it. So what a Calvinist will do is they will take, they will take for granted that the person is thinking of the Augustinian view of predestination, which is the idea of that God's eternal decision to save some and not others. And they will manipulate the person based on that presupposition. They take a bet, really, and they're, they're right 99% of the time that that's what the person thinks when they hear the term predestination. And they'll talk to them about whether or not it's true, not what it means. And then after the person says, well, I don't think that's true, what the person's thinking is they don't, really what they're thinking is they don't think the Augustinian view of predestination is true. But the Calvinist will then take that understanding and then they go to Scripture and simply show them the appearance of the word in Scripture. And I've heard, I've heard, like uh, one of my professors at the University of Mobile, his his wife said this. I used to not believe in predestination, but then when we were studying Ephesians, there's the word right there in the text, so I guess it's true. <laughs> so, so there's this major bait and switch where instead of asking the question, what does this word mean how it's used here in the text instead they they ask the question do you or do you not believe it then they just show it to you in the text and like well because it's there i must then accept my presuppositional views of what i thought predestination was and what they don't tell you is that you never stop to ask what it is to start with mm -hmm. so so you have these presuppositions so what what does it mean and that is an excellent question so what what I do is soteriologically, and that adjective is key, because when I'm talking about predestination, I'm going to talk about it in terms of how it relates to salvation as it appears in the texts that talk about salvation. I am not talking about it as a general overarching term. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll say soteriologically, the Bible uses the term this way. And then they'll, someone will say, well, over in Acts 4, it says, you know, it'll talk about God predetermining a certain event to take place. I'm like, I'm not talking about events. 
that aren't related to salvation. And I'm not saying God doesn't predetermine other events to come pass. Of course he does. And I'm not talking about predestination in general, like an atheist would talk about it, whether there's pre, you know determinism, fatalism, that sort of thing at all. Mm-hmm. So what I want to do is I want to just perform, I want to erase everything that I think about the concept of predestination and simply let the text tell me what it says. So for my view, what I want to do is I want to go to the places where the word shows up in the text in passages that are seem to be talking about salvation, specifically the ones that the Manachians and the Calvinists would be using to prove their concept of predestination. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to look and see what those are. Now go to Romans 8 if... If somebody's listening, you go to Romans chapter eight, mm-hmm. and um, if I can plug my website here, oh yeah, absolutely. Go along, ahead. There's um, if you wanted to see some of what my view is, I do have a PDF guide sheet on beyondthefundamentals.com in the class notes section, and then there's a predestination presentation PDF that anybody who you know, anybody can go there and download that www.beyondthefundamentals.com in the class notes section. Go to predestinationpresentation.pdf. You can open that up and you kind of see a sheet of what I would what I would go off of when I'm covering these topics in public. So the first time you're going to encounter the word predestination in Scripture as it relates to salvation, you're going to be in Romans chapter eight, and then the first verse you're going to come across is Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Verse 29. And what we see there, and it's it's very important that we can't, uh, we can't isolate this passage from the rest of the chapter, or really from the rest of the book either. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. And I'm bringing some other material up here that I can look at. So yeah, so so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the word predestinate. And every time you see the word, you want to ask two simple questions: Who is predestinated to what? And it is that simple. So you go to what's the definition of predestinate? or predestinated, or predestination. So, predestinate is just split it up from the prefix to the main word, and the root word is destiny, destination, okay? Everybody knows what a destination is. It's where somebody is headed. And in order to know what where a person is headed, um, <laughs> you, you got to plan for that. So, predestination is simply to have a destination identified in advance. That's all the word means. If you look up the word in a dictionary, what you're going to get is a bunch of, in addition to what the word means, you're going to get a bunch of theological definitions for how the word has been used theologically for the past 1600 years ever since Augustine. And the 
how theologians use the word and how people plug the word or create a doctrine around a word is not the definition of a word. Mm-hmm. And you have to realize that Paul is writing in the first century. He does not have 1,600 years or now 2,000 years of, of church history behind him to which he is referring to these concepts that have been developed by all these theologians that came after him. He's just using a word to say something. And so we got to forget all these doctrines, forget all these preconceived notions, and just think about the word predestination. What does it mean? All it means is for a destination to be selected in advance. That's all it means. So you're going to ask the question, what is that destination? And who, who does it concern? Who is predestinated to what? So if you were to, if you were conducting a Bible study, you might write that question down. Who is predestinated to what? And so you're going to search the text for the who. Who are we talking about here? And then, okay, it's XYZ person. And now they're predestinated to what exactly? Okay? And then it's interesting what those answers are not. So, and it's it's a little easier to de- deal with this issue from Ephesians 4, but we're, we'll stay here for a second. We'll look at Ephesians 4 in a second. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among, among many brethren. So, who is being predestinated? That That is whom he did foreknow. That's who. In other words, God has to know somebody before he predestinates them. If I could, um, if you're studying your Bible, put your finger there. If you have your Bible open, if you're listening to this, and go over to, let's say, Galatians chapter 4 for a second. So when does God know a person? Now, we do not want to do what Arminius does. Arminius makes a mess out of this. And Arminius... And we'll, we'll talk about why that is. So let's just look at what the Bible says first. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, How be it then, when ye knew not God, he's talking about these Galatians back when they weren't saved, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire to, again to be in bondage? There is a point in time at which God comes to know a person. And as Paul uses these concepts, the same author here, Galatians and Romans, same author, Paul. As Paul uses the concept of God knowing a person, as we see in Galatians chapter 4, verse 9, God knows a person starting at a certain point in time. And there was a time, basically, before the person was saved, that God did not know the person. That's why God says to some people, depart from me, for I never knew you. So if we look at whom he did foreknow, what Arminius is going to say, and we have to watch out for Arminius, because people use the phrase Arminius as if it is the opposite of Calvinism, and it is not the opposite of Calvinism. James Arminius was in a Calvinist milieu. He was in a Calvinist environment. He was under Theodore Beza, who was more Calvinistic than John Calvin. Um, he really was. Theodore Beza was was a very rigid Calvinist, all right? And all of James Arminius's appointments throughout his life came because of recommendations from super-Calvinist Theodore Beza. So Theodore Beza is not going to be 
recommending a completely non-Calvinistic person to all these different viewpoints. And and James Arminius, he affirmed all the Calvinistic confessions, thought that maybe they could be understood better or maybe reword a couple things like that. So he is noticing some cracks in Calvinist theology, but in his lifetime, he never completely leaves the mindset. And that's what we have to understand. So he is... He is discovering problems within Calvinism, but never completely comes out of it and sees Scripture clearly without Calvinistic presuppositions. He's still completely laden with Calvinistic presuppositions. So he, so what he's going to be trying to do is trying to see Calvinistic presuppositions and come up with explanations for how to get around them. Okay? So Arminius is going to say this. With regard to predestination, he will say, To thee succeeds the fourth decree by which God decreed to save save and damn certain particular persons. This decree has its foundation in the foreknowledge of God, by which he knew from all eternity those individuals who would, through his preventing grace, preventing grace, believe and through his subsequent grace, would persevere according to that before-described administration. And it goes on. So, And then he, later on he says, and by which foreknowledge he likewise knew those who would not believe and persevere. So, uh, Arminius takes the concept of foreknowledge and he has God looking in eternity past to the time when a person would get saved, to the time when a person would have faith. And then he predestinates them based on that foreknowledge. The text does not support that idea. That is a man with Calvinistic presuppositions trying to make the Bible not sound Calvinistic, even though he can't actually think of it that way. So so the foreknowledge is not God knowing a person in eternity past. It's simply God knowing a person before he predestinates them. That's all it's a reference to. And the other mistake is the, the real mistake that Arminius is making. And it's the, it's the exact same mistake so many Christians today make. They see the word predestination and they think it's God predestinating who will get saved. In other words, who will be converted? Who will receive Christ? Who will be regenerated? They think it's God from eternity past predestinating who will get converted. But no text that uses the word predestinate means that. So if you look here in Romans 8.30, Romans 8.29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Now here comes the what. Who, who is predestinated to what? He also did predestinate to the, to be conformed to the image of his son. That does not happen when a person gets saved. That happens long after a person gets saved. You will become, uh, I'll show you an example here. Stay in this chapter and just back up a little bit to verse 23. It says, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Now, that redemption of the body is, is the thing to wit. That's when we become like Jesus Christ. That's when we get made into the image of Jesus. We're conformed to the image of Jesus Christ when we have the redemption of our body. Notice that word adoption there. We're going to see that later in Ephesians. Paul very clearly defines the adoption as something that Christians are currently waiting for. 
not something that we have already, and the adoption is defined as the redemption of our body. Now, while we're talking about adoption, back up a little bit more. Verse 19. Now, forget, forget everything you know about adoption. When you hear the word adoption, you are thinking, typical American, when I say you, typical Westerner, I guess, typical American is thinking of a legal process by which somebody who is not your child becomes your child. That is not how Paul uses the word. And we have to get that in our minds. Let the Bible define itself. We have the very first time Paul uses the word adoption, he defines it for us. And it is in verse 23, the redemption of our body. So we have to understand that. Adoption in the Bible, as Paul uses it, is something that happens to people who are already sons by the new birth. So we are sons by birth, and then the sons who are by birth get a redemption of the body. So we back up to verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. See, what does that mean? Right now, everybody looks at you and you look, look just like every other human. Now, you could be saved. You could have the spirit of God inside you. But you're walking around at the mall or Walmart or wherever. And nobody can see that. Nobody can see that you're any different than anybody else. But there is coming a time in the future, coming to a city near you, where you're going to get the redemption of the body, and what you are on the inside, which is a son of God, is going to be manifested on the outside in the redeemed body, in the glorified body, which is conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and that is the manifestation of the sons of God, where anybody can look at you and say, ooh, one of these things is not like the others. This guy's different. There's something different about this guy. So that's what's going to happen in the future of the Christian life. And we are predestinated to that occurring to us. And if you're sitting there listening to this podcast, that has not happened to you yet. <laughs> it's, it's still in your future. Dealing with this issue of adoption, if you back up to verse 15, still in Romans 8. If you were to open up, I know you can't see me, this is just audio, but I have here in the room with me a copy of Grudem's uh, systematic theology. And if you open up there and start reading about, about adoption, it is the most horrendous thing you ever read in your life. And adoption gets taught and thought of as something that happens to people when they get saved. And that comes from centuries and centuries and centuries of people basically not paying attention to Scripture. You do get something pertaining to adoption when you get saved, but you don't get the redemption of the body when you get saved. You get a guarantee of it. In Romans 8, 15, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption. So you have the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So we already are the children of God. And then in the very same chapter, now look for 17 still, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. Now that word glory is very, very important. If you're reading through the book of Romans for the first time and you've never been taught any theology, you would get to chapter 3. Well, <laughs> And you would notice that there's two problems 
in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Very familiar verse. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Most of Christian theology deals with the problem of sin. And then we we treat the problem of sin like it's still the problem, even after Christ took care of it. And they're failing to read what Romans is really about. The sin problem is dealt with by Christ. That's very clearly identified starting in chapter 3 up through chapter 5 of Romans. In chapter 6 and 7, we get talked to up through about 8.14 or so, we get talked to about how the saved person continues to deal with sin even though Christ already paid for it. And then the second half of Romans 3.23, Paul really doesn't delve into it until chapter 8. So if you were reading Romans for the first time and you're really into it, you're really following it along, you would notice two problems, sin and the falling short of glory in Romans 3.23. And all the way up through chapter 5 or so, you would say, okay, the sin thing is taken care of, but what about the glory? What, what about this? And it's in chapter 8 where you finally get to breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, here it is. The glory is a future thing that we also may be glorified together. Mm-hmm. That, that future glorification, that is the redemption of the body. That is the adoption. Mm-hmm. In that culture, they would have a coming-of-age ceremony. The, the Jews have a bar mitzvah and lots of especially tribal cultures have initiation ceremonies for the young men and in those ceremonies you go through this initiation process and then you come out a man uh so you become an adult basically you're considered now a man part of the tribe a decision maker a stakeholder that kind of thing in this greco-roman culture that paul is writing in a similar coming of age ceremony would happen where you come up under tutors, and even though you're the biological son of the Lord of the manor, you are the biological son, you are still under governors and tutors, treated just like a servant until a certain age. You have the coming-of-age ceremony, then you come out as a man, then you receive the things that you inherit from your father, and you have the authority of your last name, and you're recognized as an adult. That is the parallel that Paul is drawing with the concept of adoption. So when the person is born, they don't have the authority yet. They they are heir of the father's estate, but they don't have control of it yet. Mm -hmm. And then there comes a coming of age point in time where they get control. And when that happens, they put on a new toga. You know, like they, they take off the boy shorts and they put on long pants like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like right. they used to do over in Europe. And it's you get a new outfit. That's what's going to happen to the Christian. That is the adoption that's going to happen to Christians in the future. So we have the spirit of adoption when we get saved and trust Christ, but we are predestinated to the adoption. We're waiting for the adoption, Romans eight twenty three to wit the redemption of our body. And then it gets called conformed to the image of his son in verse 29. So for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, uh, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So Mm -hmm. his son, Jesus, is the firstborn among many brethren because the other sons are being conformed to his image. Right. 
And then you have, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, whom he also called, them he also justified, whom he justified, them he also glorified. The reason I mentioned that verse is because mm-hmm. the word predestinate shows up again in it, yes. but it is just a reference back to verse 29. So once you exegete 29, you understand what is happening in verse 30, okay? Um, so if I could pause just for a second yeah, there and, and look at, say... Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Now bear in mind what who's predestinated to what. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now, this is a great summary of Romans 8, really. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. If, you're, if you've trusted Christ, you are a son of God right now. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Why? Romans 8, 19, the manifestation of the sons of God has not happened yet. You, the adoption, the redemption of the body hasn't happened yet. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That is when the Christian becomes conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Every Christian, after you are saved, or from the moment you are saved, from the moment God knows you, Knowing you is the prerequisite. Once God knows you, he then predestinates you to become conformed exactly to be just like Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. That's what Romans 8 is saying. Mm -hmm. So that you do not have lost people being predestinated to be conformed, being predestinated to get saved. You have saved people being predestinated for the adoption, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Mm Um. Yeah. What I want to do next is look at Ephesians 1, but I'll pause there. So in in order to be uh, predestinated, the qualifier is that God had to foreknow you or you had to be foreknown of God. I know you talked about it for for a second, but um, just for sake of clarity, if you could tell us what is the qualification of being foreknown of God? Are you you going to say that that was uh, belief in the gospel? And at that point, then you're foreknown of God? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But once the person trusts Christ as their Savior, you are born of God then. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 12 to 13. Once you are born of God, that's when God knows you. The reason we know that is because that's the dividing line that Paul gives us in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9, when, a, when God comes to know a person. He says, when ye knew not God, ye did service to them which by nature are no gods. But now after that, ye have known God. And then he restates it as, or rather are known of God. So he compares the time before they were saved as when ye knew not God. And now that they are saved, now you are known of God. Mm-hmm. So that is the turning point when God goes from not knowing a person to knowing a person. So I have a question for you. I wanted to pick your brain a little bit. In verse 29, where where Paul used the word foreknow, um, which means to know beforehand, why didn't he just say, for whom God knows, he also did predestinate? Because there's two aspects here. First of all, God knowing a person is a prerequisite to them being predestinated. So he has to foreknow them that way. Mm-hmm. The second aspect is it's the it's basically the opposite of how your typical Arminian would see this. My, oh, 
the strangest scroll of all way. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me let me get back to the text. Oh, you're good. So, what you have, what the typical Arminian view is going to be God from eternity past looking forward to the time that a person gets saved. What we see in Scripture here, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 to 30, you notice he says, verse 30, moreover whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice that did predestinate and called are both past tense, no problem there. He called them, he also justified, past tense, no problem there. Whom he justified, them he also glorified, that is also past tense. That is kind of weird because unlike those other ones, unlike those other qualities that are listed, glorified has not happened yet. Right. But God still, the, the text still uses it in the past tense as if it has already happened. So what you have when God knows a person God the Father from eternity future, from our perspective, mm-hmm. knows that person as if they are already glorified. Right. And knows that in advance. So as soon as you get saved, God foreknows you as glorified. You can say it in the past tense, like it's already happened. Mm-hmm. God's perspective it has. In the text's perspective it has. But we just haven't seen it yet. It hasn't been manifested to us yet. Okay. Um while while we're here in in Romans, I wanted to ask you a question about Romans chapter 9 cuz that's uh-huh. another that's another chapter that they like to go to uh-huh. when discussing this and they talk about how uh let me go ahead and read it. It says for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, mm-hmm. but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness of God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who has resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Um, now, <clears throat> I know when I was discussing uh, predestination. The first time I ever heard it, when it was presented to me, I was discussing it with a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. He brought up Romans nine, and I, I have to admit, when he brought it up, I was stumped. Now, yeah, when yeah. when they bring it up to you, how do you respond? Since you you studied this out, and from and from your position, um, how do you respond when someone goes to Romans nine? So what what you just described, that experience that you just described of being stumped is a very common experience that happens to a lot of people. And the way that happens is because 
excuse me, somebody does eisegesis instead of exegesis. And a person who is manipulative can get you to do eisegesis without you even realizing it. Without mm-hmm. you even realizing it. And what I will say, what's the difference between exegesis and eisegesis? Exegesis is, it means to draw out. And what you, you look at the text, you have no ideas in your mind, and you simply draw out what the text says, and that's all you walk away with. What eisegesis is, is to put in. So you take the, you, you have ideas from outside the text, and then you bring them to the text. Now, the way a Calvinist does this is they will start talking to you in terms of people you know. Now, I'm I'm an American. I'm in Louisiana today, okay? So I'm surrounded generally by Americans. And uh, they will start talking about people who do and don't get saved today. And in America, it's predominantly Gentiles. So we're talking about Gentiles who don't get saved. Mm-hmm. And the Calvinist is going to... Pr- He's going to submit the proposal to you through conversation somehow or other that the reason those people don't get saved is because God hasn't chosen them to be saved. Or he might even say that because God has uh, preordained a decree of damnation and reprobation against them. Okay, mm-hmm. And the, the Christian is going to, uh, they're going to respond in a, most of the time you get an emotional reaction because they're not prepared for this argument. And they will say, well, that doesn't sound fair. Mm-hmm. And that is the absolute worst thing you can say because that is what they want you to say because now they're, they're going to deal with whether or not it is fair instead of whether what the Scripture does or doesn't say. So that while you're thinking about Gentiles getting saved or not getting saved today in 2019, they are going to, bearing that in mind, go to Romans 9 and say, Hey, who do you think you are that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to the thing that formed it? Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay? You know that Gentile next to you who didn't get saved in church? But the same lump to make one vessel into honor and the other vessel to dishonor? And when they do that, it's conversational and it's slick. It's sly. And what they just did is they took a modern-day application of a concept, and they, without you realizing it, they are getting you to eisegete that concept, that application, back into the text, which is not what it's talking about. So let's see, what it, what is it talking about? So first of all, let's let's make something very, very clear. The New Testament, when it talks about salvation, has a bunch of there are a bunch of mechanistic things that start occurring after Christ rises from the dead and after Pentecost. And they don't even know. (laughs) They don't even know that they can witness to Gentiles until Acts 11, 18. They don't even know that. They're going around preaching to none but to Jews only. So many things they don't know. So many things about the way, so, and and I don't want to take the time to get into all these things, but like the coming of the Holy Spirit, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, regeneration, the process of being born again, all that stuff is New Testament stuff. That stuff is foretold in the Old Testament, 
to the point where Nicodemus should have known about it, but it is not actually occurring yet. Okay, right. You got like <clears throat> like God tells a a pagan king in Genesis twenty verse six that he has integrity in his heart. Okay, then you can move forward to the future, and then so I say all that to say this: if God decided to send, do you take? If God decided to send everybody to hell from Adam to John the Baptist, that would have absolutely no bearing whatsoever on who gets saved after Acts 2 and how they get saved. No bearing whatsoever. <laughs> and so, so what you see in the Old Testament, you see a bunch of examples here of God doing what he wants to do. And the point, the overarching point, is that God can do whatever he wants, and you cannot stop him. The The ironic thing about this <laughs> is that the thing that it's, the thing that God is doing, this Romans 9 is a great chapter to refute Calvinism, if you, if you understand it in context. In context. What, what God is doing that somebody is unhappy with is he instead of restricting salvation to a certain small group of people like the jews he is opening it up to everybody and the people who are wrong are the ones who don't like that now the jews thought that god was restricting salvation just to them just to jews and jewish proselytes that's the only people peter talks to in acts chapter 2 jews and jewish proselytes you want me to talk to a Gentile? Not so, Lord. That's what Peter tells Jesus. I'm not talking to no dirty Gentile. What on earth do you think's going on here? I'm, I'm a good Jew. I'm not, I'm not doing that. They're the frozen chosen. They're the frozen few, you know? Yeah, he told, and the, he told God no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he told God that's lordship salvation for you. So Peter lost his salvation in Acts chapter 10, started going to hell until he got to Acts chapter 11. So if he'd have died there, well, he'd have been a goner, I guess. So. <laughs> So, what's happening in Rome in Romans chapter nine, and that's something uh, I'm, I'm going to take you through a few other passages to really understand this, so you can see what God is building up to. Oh, if I were to go, let's see here. I'm looking through a couple. Okay, good. If you're reading through your New Testament, you come across this passage in Matthew chapter 13. And Jesus says something very interesting. He says, And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross. Who's this people, that, by the way? It is Jews. That's right. For sure, it is Jews. You can cross-reference that against Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 through 6, Matthew 15, 24. It is Jews. This people's heart is works and wax gross. Matthew 1, 25, but also 24, 125. Shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21, somewhere around there. Shall save his people from their sins. Calvinists like to quote that one a lot. That's also Jews. For this people's heart is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes, uh, they have closed. Hmm. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. It sounds like here that what's going on in Matthew chapter 13, verse 14 through 15 is 
Jesus is speaking in parables. And he's speaking in parables specifically so certain people won't be able to hear him and be converted. And those people are the Jews. The Jews are being selected to be blinded and hardened. Now, if total depravity was true, Jesus would not have to speak in parables to confuse them because they wouldn't be able to believe anyway. So he wouldn't have to be cryptic with how he says things. He could just say them and the totally depraved people wouldn't get saved. It's not what happens though. <laughs> we see this same passage. Now, that, that passage is a quotation from, from Isaiah. And that passage in Isaiah is Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 through 13. It says, and he said, go and tell this people, Jews, hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, make their ears heavy. Shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. So, in Romans 9, they're blinded. In Romans 11, 20, I mean, in Romans 9, they're hardened. In Romans 11, 25, they are blinded. All comes from this concept here, shut their eyes. And, and then said, I, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities be without inhabitant. And it goes on to explain who that is. That comes from Isaiah chapter 9. So you see that in Matthew chapter 13. You see that in Mark chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. 10 through 13. Mark 4, 10 through 13. Then they were about him were 12, asked him of the parable. And he said unto them, unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive. Goes on to quote the same thing from Isaiah 6. That's in Mark. That's in Matthew 13. It's in Mark 4. You go to Luke chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. Then his disciples asked the same thing. They asked him saying, what might this parable be? And he said, unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but unto others in parables. That seeing they might see, and hearing they might not understand. Now the parable is this. Then he goes on to explain the parable to the inner circle, but the, to the rest of the guys. And that is, a, again, the same quotation from Isaiah 6. And it is, uh, it is about Jews. In John chapter 12, verses 37 through 43. And so in all four Gospels, all four Gospels, Somebody is having the truth hidden from them. Somebody is being hardened. Somebody is being blinded. And it all goes back to Isaiah 6. And it's always the Jews every single time. Every single time. In, Roman, in John chapter 12, verse 37 through 43, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Isaiah 6, same one, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? To whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? They could not believe, therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Who gets their eyes blinded? Jews, Romans eleven twenty five. Who gets their heart hardened? Jews, Romans chapter 9, verse 18, 16 through 18. Their eyes blind, their heart hardened, that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted that I should heal them. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all quoting from this exact same passage, using the terms blinded and hardened, always refers to Jews every single time for the rejection of the Messiah. Every single time. Now, they're not done yet. Acts 28. You just see, you don't want to leave one out. God's not stupid. If you're reading through your Bible, 
one one book at a time, and you're in order in the New Testament till you get to Romans, you're going to come across Acts too, right? For this cause, therefore, have I called you to see Acts, I'm sorry, Acts 28, starting in verse 20. For this cause, therefore, have I called you to see you and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. They said unto him, We neither received letters of Judea concerning thee, neither any of the brethren that came showed the spake of thee, but we desire to hear what thou thinkest. And I'm looking at the time where it says this. Okay. If you look down at verse 25 in Acts chapter 28, verse 24, And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. Who is it? It is Jews. What's the context? For the hope of Israel. Okay? And they agreed not among themselves. Um, and when they agreed not among themselves, they departed. And after that, Paul had spoken one word, well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people, who's this people? Jews, and say, Hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, seeing you shall see and not perceive. Why? Because they're being blinded. Romans 11, 25. For the heart of this people is waxed gross. Who's this people? Jews. The heart of this people is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, thus they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with the heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and they will hear it. <laughs> and that, that is the gist of Romans 9. In Acts, you have a triad of verses in Acts 13, 46, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. In Acts 18, 6, from henceforth, I will go to the Gentiles. In Acts 28, 28, therefore, uh, be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles and they will hear it. Why? Because the Jews are being hardened and blinded for rejecting their Messiah. So now I've gone through Isaiah 6. I've gone through Matthew. Mark, Luke, John, Acts. I've got people being hardened and blinded in every single one of these books in a row. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And then all of a sudden, when we get to Romans, we get the exact same precise kind of language about somebody being hardened and blinded. We know who it is if you've been reading your Bible, which Calvinists cannot seem to do. We know who it is. It's Jews. But for some reason, when we get to Romans, it's suddenly the Gentile who was sitting next to you in church last Sunday who didn't get saved. It's suddenly that guy. How on earth a person could miss the context is just, be, I just cannot understand how a person could claim to be a Bible believer and claim to read the Bible. They get told, Five times in a row, five times in a row, that Jews are being hardened and blinded and God's opening things wide open to the Gentiles. And then suddenly in Romans 9, they don't get it. So, so we, take, uh, we take Romans chapter 9 and he says, uh, so what's, ha the, what's happening if you've been going through the book of Acts? Now it's starting to pace. If you've been going through the book of Acts, you'll notice that Peter starts talking to all the Jews first in Acts chapter 2. They don't realize Gentiles can get saved until Acts chapter 10. They make it very clear in Acts chapter 11, verse 18. Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance of the life, 
Acts 11, 19, they were just going around preaching to none but to Jews only. And then in Acts chapter 15, you find out that everybody finds out together that everybody, lie to Jews, Gentiles alike, get saved the exact same way, just like Cornelius did. That is, God purifying their hearts by faith, and you don't have to keep the law and be circumcised anymore. Now, the Jews aren't too happy about that. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 21, or is it Acts chapter 20? <laughs> I always forget. I can look real quick. I think it's Acts 21, 25. And you find out that the Jews are still, they're letting the Gentiles. The Jews are still having people in Acts chapter 21 and telling Paul, take them and purify thyself with them and be at charges with them that they may shave their heads. He's telling these guys to take the vow of a Nazarite. They are still following the law. But as touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded, they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. So the Jews... Even after all that stuff, all the way through Acts chapter 15, they are still, the, the believing Jews now, the believing Jews are still keeping the law, and they have this little segregation. They well, we're not making the Gentiles keep the law, but we've kept the law all our lives, that kind of thing. Well, the, the rec, you know, the people are upset. Even some of the, I mean, you've been to a church, you've seen anybody listen to this podcast, you've gone to church, you know that not everybody in a church agrees with things, and you start making changes, and people start getting upset. And you got you got Jews that have been Jews all their life, that have been beard, pork-observing, you know, pork-abstaining, pork Sabbath-observing, temple-worshipping Jews, and all of a sudden, you start letting salvation be opened up to all these uncircumcised Gentiles? Are you kidding me? That... There, there's some consternation about this. They're, they're upset about it. And so when we get to Romans 9, the Jews who, they, they're kind of like the Calvinists today. They think it's the Frozen Chosen Club. It's just us and nobody else. And, and what Paul is there to tell them is that it's, hey, it's not just you guys. It's open up to everybody else. And God is hardening Israel. If it's not clear in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, I don't know how it could possibly be made any clearer. There is no Gentile that is being hardened between Pentecost and the second coming, the rapture aspect of the second coming. So between Pentecost and the rapture, there are no Gentiles ever being hardened, according to Scripture. It's always Jews, every single time. In Romans 9, it's the Jews. So the last... Well, I'll point out one more thing real quick in Romans chapter. If you look at Romans 18, I would tell everybody listening to this podcast a very quick version of everything that I just said. If you don't have that much time, <laughs> and usually don't, go write in your Bible, or I guess today, open up your Olive Tree app and make, an app, make a note in Romans 9.18 where it says, Therefore, he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. The shortcut answer to that is Romans chapter 11, verse 32. One thing I tell people to do all the time in biblical interpretation is to simply keep reading. If you're a Calvinist, if you would just keep reading your Bible, you would be cured of your Calvinism. If you would just keep going, from John 6 to John 12, you know, that kind of thing. And 
keep going from Ephesians 1 to Ephesians 2. When you get to Romans 9, keep going to Romans 11. And you'll come across this verse in Romans chapter 11, verse 32. For he hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. That is so clear. So if suddenly God suddenly loses the sovereignty to be able to decide on mercy, to decide to have mercy on whom he wants to at that point, <laughs> from the Calvinist perspective. Like, yeah, in Romans 18, God can have mercy on whomever he wants to. And what they mean by that is God has chosen not to have mercy on the Gentile next to you who didn't get saved in church last week. That's what they mean by that. But what we find is, okay, God is if God really is sovereign. He can have mercy on whomever he wants. Let's see what he says about it. Because if you ask the question, Romans 9, 18, okay, he can have mercy on whomever he wants. God, I understand that. Now let's ask the question, who does he want to have mercy on? What's the answer to that question in Romans 9? The answer to that question is not in Romans 9, 18. All we're getting in Romans 9, 18 is that it's God's right to have mercy on whoever he wants. That's what we're being told. So the question is, well, who does he want to have mercy on? That question's answered very clearly in Romans chapter 11, verse 32. But suddenly, God stops being sovereign at that point and no longer has the right to decide who to have mercy on. Now the Calvinists have to tell him who to have mercy on because he gets it wrong there, apparently. Thank you, everyone, for listening in to today's podcast. I hope that today's show was both interesting and informative. If you liked the show, don't forget to give us a thumbs up. And if you are interested in hearing more, simply click the subscribe button. I encourage everyone to share your thoughts in the comments section. And if you are interested in being a guest on the show, you can email me at thebereandialogues at gmail.com. Or if you'd like us to do an episode on a specific topic that we haven't covered yet, simply email us at the same address. Again, that is thebereandialogues at gmail.com. Until next time, remember, search the scriptures daily.